We remember and we celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus, the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, who humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That man, he was raised from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we believe that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, that he literally became a man, that he lived and died a real death, and that on the third day, he really came back to life. This morning, as we continue in our series in the book of Philippians, we're going to look at how the resurrection was not a one-time event, but that it is something that we will all experience at the end of the age. Last week, when we baptized five of our people, I spoke over each of them after baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have been buried with Christ for the forgiveness of sins and raised to walk in newness of life. That baptism is a symbol and sign of what has, is, and will transpire in the lives of those who have submitted themselves to King Jesus. Our old self has been put to death, and we are now new creations in Christ. And as new creations in Christ, we must daily put to death the deeds of the flesh. And one day, when Christ returns, we will attain the resurrection of the dead if we share in the suffering by becoming like Christ. And so with that, let's jump into our text this morning. We are in Philippians chapter 3. You were given a bulletin when you came in. You can follow along. There's a simple outline, and the passage is also there within the bulletin. And so chapter 3 marks a transition, as Paul will now be discussing the final matters of his letter. So it says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. He says, finally, and that's a literal translation, but it's probably better to read it more along the lines of furthermore or in addition to. It says brothers, and again, I think brothers and sisters makes more sense in this context as Paul is addressing the entirety of the Philippian church. And the term itself in the plural is often used as a reference to both men and women. And then the command that he gives He commands the people to rejoice in the Lord. See, this term shows up nine times in the letter. So Paul gets that he might be being a bit redundant, but he also knows that we sometimes need to hear things more than once, especially the important things. Like as parents, we get that, right? How many times we have to teach our children to brush their teeth? It's an important thing, but they forget. Now I think... What Paul is doing is in commanding um, the people to rejoice, he's, he's teaching them something. He's teaching them that when we rejoice, he notices, he says, it's safe for you, that when we rejoice, it actually does provide a safeguard for us. I don't know if you're familiar with the verse, but the joy of the Lord is what? Our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And and I think we've all experienced this this concept, right, that the joy of the Lord serves as an anchor for us. I I shared last week how Seski serves as a model for me in rejoicing in the midst of sorrow and pain. You do. And I bet he would say that it it, it is his rejoicing 
in the midst of sorrow and pain that safeguards him from bitterness and anger. That it anchors his soul in Christ when the storms of life roll through. That's how it works. When we rejoice or when we posture ourselves with gratitude, we begin to see the world rightly. And while we might experience sorrow and pain, in fact, we will experience sorrow and pain, we are strengthened by the joy of the Lord as we practice gratitude and rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And it is in verse 2 where we begin to see why Paul is commanding the Philippians to rejoice. It says this. It says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What a happy Easter passage. Three warnings are given, and the warnings are directed at a specific group of people who were, in fact, preaching a different gospel. And so the problem that Paul is tackling is a problem that had arisen in other churches. And while it might not have yet come to Philippi, it was the sort of thing that could arise at any moment. And so what's the problem? In a nutshell, there was a group of people known as Judaizers who were placing a burden on Gentile Christians that in order to truly be a child of Abraham, for their Christianity to be complete, they needed to be circumcised and submit themselves to the Old Testament law. Now, at first glance, we can say that this is legalism or salvation by works, but a better way to understand this is salvation by entrusting ourselves to a nationalistic pride and pedigree. The Judaizers, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, also believed that in order to fully embrace him, one needed to essentially become Jewish. But what this group failed to realize is that the boundary markers of Judaism, they were never intended to be forever, and that it was not about becoming Jewish, but about becoming a blessing to the nations a task given to the Jewish people from the very beginning, and a task they failed to fulfill time and time again. And so Paul, in Paul-like fashion, has some harsh words for this group. And so these three look-out-fors are Paul's tongue-in-cheek way of saying to them, everything you believe yourself to be and all of the pride you have as children of Abraham is actually the very thing that will be your undoing, that will be your downfall. He says dogs, evildoers, and flesh mutilators. And that's Paul's way of saying, in placing yourself above the Gentiles, you're actually becoming just like them. In claiming to rep be representative of, of God and doers of his law, you are in fact practicing evil. And in placing the burden of circumcision upon these Gentiles and previously pagan followers of Christ, you are embodying the very practice forbidden in the law of Moses to mutilate oneself in worship to a foreign god or deity. I'm reminded of when Obi-Wan and Darth Vader face off in Star Wars. Vader says to Obi-Wan, when I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. To which Obi-Wan replied, only a master of evil, Darth. So good. In seeking to become or maintain their status as God's covenant people, they devolved into the very things they hated. Dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. In a word, 
Gentiles or pagans. So in other words, what's going on here is that these false teachers who, because of their nationalistic pride and pedigree, they believed themselves to be the true covenant people of God. But in reality, they were proclaiming a false gospel and they were placing their faith in the wrong things. The covenant people of God are not marked out by ethnic lines of distinction, but by the spirit of almighty God. By the Spirit of Almighty God, which is why Paul says in verse 3, look out for these people, don't be deceived. Why? Because we are in fact the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is basically Paul's mic drop moment where he's looking at the people of Philippi and he's saying everything that they're telling you or that they might tell you if they arrive, everything that they're going to proclaim to you, it's not true. It's not true. Their claims to be the covenant people of God is not true. We are the circumcision. We are the people of God. The Judaizers worshipped their circumcision and had become idolaters, while the Gentiles who entrusted themselves to Christ worshipped by the Spirit of God. The Judaizers gloried in their nationalistic pride while the Gentiles gloried in Christ. The Judaizers sought to uphold the law as a badge of honor while the Gentiles put their confidence not in their own flesh, but in the crucified flesh of Christ. So what's the point? What Paul wants the Philippians to understand and what he wants them to rejoice in is that they are God's covenant people, marked by the Spirit of God, and as we'll see in just a few minutes, the people of the resurrection. The people of the resurrection. But while Paul delivers some harsh words to these Judaizers, he also fully understands where they're coming from. While he now puts his confidence not in the flesh, there was a time when he too worshipped his circumcision, his nationalistic pedigree, and his adherence to the law. It was where he placed all of his faith, faith and trust. You see, Paul was not denouncing his Jewish past as a religion of works, but rather a religion of misplaced faith and trust. Of misplaced faith and trust. Let's, let's read the text, verses 4 through 6. It says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. Paul basically says that if those guys think they bring anything to the table, they should take a look at my resume. If you've seen the first Crocodile Dundee, Another movie reference. Think of the scene where Mick Dundee puts a mugger in his place by brandishing his bowie knife when all the mugger has is a switchblade. You call that a knife? He then lists all his accolades and credentials, his circumcision, his ethnicity, not only his ethnicity, but the tribe that that he belongs to, the tribe of Benjamin. He, He can trace his ancestry all the way back to the patriarchs. He's the real deal. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, one who took his faith so seriously that he was willing to snuff out anyone who brought shame to Israel, to the covenant people of God. A couple things that are going on here. Paul is laying out for the Philippians his own Jewish pedigree and background. 
And what this does is it provides the Philippians with some confidence when these false teachers show up. Paul is basically saying, these guys that are coming, they might sound like they know what they're talking about, but they can't even hold a candle to my expertise. Look at my resume. He also taps into the language of the Philippians, which would be, which would be very familiar with them. They were a culture that reveled in honor and status. It's what Rome was all about. And he lays it out, actually, really interestingly, in the same way a Roman citizen would present their own honors and achievements. In fact, and we'll see this play out even more in the final section, Paul is mimicking what he did in chapter 2 when he presented Jesus as one who had all power and all privilege one could possess, a pedigree beyond comprehension, who was in the form of God, it says in Philippians chapter 2, yet he used none of it for his own glory. He used none of it for his own glory. And so Paul has been making a point throughout this entire letter that power, privilege, pedigree, whether it comes from heaven itself or from our family tree, is not the path to glory, but rather spirit-produced faith that gives way to self-giving love and humility is the mark of the covenant people of God. And as we'll see in just a minute, the vehicle which ushers the church into the resurrection of the dead. Which is why Paul can say what he says next. In a culture where the competing message of salvation is one that places an individual's achievements their honor and static as the pinnacle of what it means to be a flourishing human and a citizen of Rome. Paul says that he counts all of his achievements, his national pride and status within Israel and among his people as a loss. It means nothing. Zero balance in the bank account. It reads as follows. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss. Why? For the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. And he found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul makes some important points here. We do not have time to jump on every single point he makes, but I'm going to focus on just a few as we wrap up our time this morning. Paul's entire goal, his entire goal for his life, the thing that he is wrapped up in completely, what drives him most is gaining Christ and being found in him. He does that in two ways. First, by repenting turning from every he, everything he thought to be true about the world, counting everything as loss, everything he believed that was right, everything that he put his confidence in, that he entrusted himself to, 
And we all have things that we entrust ourselves to, things that we put our confidence in, things that we boast about. He counts those all as loss. The question that we need to wrestle with this morning and what we need to wrestle with daily, what are we holding on to? Where are we placing our confidence? What are we entrusting ourselves to? We may not live in Rome, and we may not have the same struggles that Philippian believers might have had, that honor and status meant everything, but we have so many things that compete for our worship. So many things that draw us away from God. So many voices telling us what is right and what God is trying to challenge us with. He's saying, no, 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 no. It is about my son, Jesus. That is what marks out my people. That is the thing. That is the banner that should be flying above all of us. That is who we belong to. And we need to live in light of that truth. We need to entrust ourselves to the person and work of Christ, not the person and work of me or the person and work of some system or the person and work of whatever. It's the person and work of Almighty King Jesus that we are to entrust ourselves to. Second, The way in which he gains Christ is not not found in him, but it is found in Jesus. Again, by entrusting himself to the faithfulness of Christ, not his own faithfulness to his Jewish roots and law. It says in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but... And again, these are those words that as you're working through a passage and you see that, you need to take a closer look because he's making an argument. He's saying not this, but this. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. Now, there's a little bit of debate here. I'm just going to tell you where I land. I believe a better translation for this passage is to say, but that which comes by the faithfulness of Christ. What are we entrusting ourselves to? Where are we putting our faith? Because who is Jesus? None other than the true Israelite, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who was faithful, the one who walked in complete obedience to Almighty God, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is the one who fulfills everything. And while Paul might have a resume that would outshine any of us in this room, Jesus' resume makes Paul's resume look like absolutely nothing, like a loss, like rubbish. And if you dig a little deeper, you could figure out what he means by rubbish. No, we entrust ourselves to the faithfulness of our King Jesus. He accomplished everything. He was faithful to the uttermost. That is our king. And all that he possessed, all that he had, being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own gain. He laid it all aside. He entered into creation He died upon the cross so that we would not have to. And on the third day, this day that we celebrate, 
He rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. That's where our trust and our confidence lies. In the work of that man. That's where our trust and confidence lies. In other words, Paul is saying that there was a time when he placed his faith and confidence in who he was as a Jew and his faithfulness to the Old Testament law. But by grace, he has come to realize that Jesus the Messiah was the one who was faithful, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's in him that we must put our full confidence in. To extend the Crocodile Dundee illustration, the Bowie knife, while it might have been more powerful than the switchblade, it still won't make the cut, pun intended. We're going to need a bigger knife. And to quote another movie, we're going to need a bigger boat. I got the 80s on my mind. I don't know why. The last point, and what I believe to be the main point of the passage, why we're all here this morning on Easter Sunday, Paul's entire life is aimed toward something. And he is willing to do whatever it takes to get there by any means possible. Paul's hope and the hope that I'm praying captures every single one of us who is here this morning is to live a life that is targeted toward the resurrection of the dead. It says attain, but we can also translate that word as arrive. And the only path that leads us there is the same path that Jesus took, the path that is outlined in Philippians chapter 2, the path of obedience and faithfulness that shows up in a life of sacrificial and love, sacrificial love and kindness towards both God and neighbor. We share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbors. It says in verse 10 that Paul wants to know him and the power of his resurrection to share his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. First things first, we cannot die the death that Jesus died. We can't. His death was the perfect sacrifice. It atoned for our sin. It paid the price we were unable to pay. But we can become like him in his death. Meaning that we too can demonstrate self-giving love and kindness toward one another. We too can resist temptation and live lives of holiness and faithfulness to, to God. And we too can remain faithful even amid the difficulties and pain of this life that we will all experience. And how can we do this? Through the power of his resurrection, which is the Holy Spirit of God. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is what we all possess individually and corporately as the body of Christ. Which means that the suffering that we share in, you know how we get through it? It's interesting. The order makes sense. That I may, that I may, where am I at here? I lose my spot sometimes. That I may know, verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and then what comes and may share his sufferings. Why? Because in order to endure his sufferings, in order to walk through the valley of the shadow of death as followers of Jesus, we desperately need the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the resurrection. We can't do it without that. And we receive that when we bend our knee to King Jesus, when we entrust ourselves to the faithfulness of Christ by faith, 
We are incorporated into the body of Christ. We are brought into union with Christ. We are given the forgiveness of sins. We can stand before Almighty God, innocent because the blood of Jesus cleanses us and the resurrection proves that he is the one who he said he is. That's what it means when we put our faith in Christ. And so we can live this life in faithfulness. We can reveal to the world just what God is like. Why? Because we have been indwelt by the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what it means when we celebrate the resurrection. He is alive and well. And he is giving us the ability through his Holy Spirit to walk in faithfulness, to love God and to love neighbor, even the neighbors that are not particularly lovable. He gives us the power to do so. Oh, that's good news, Redeemer. That is good, good news. It's the best kind of news. The entire point of our passage this morning and the entire point of the Easter story is that Jesus, in dying on the cross for our sins and being raised to new life on the third day, swung wide open the gates of heaven. He tore down the dividing wall of hostility so that we might know Christ Jesus, our Lord. That we might know him. I, I don't know if we fully recognize this. I know I don't on a daily basis. What it means to be a Christian is that we have become friends with God, that we actually know God the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who orders all things throughout creation, the entire universe, who holds it all in the palm of his hands, we get to know him. Of course that's of surpassing value than anything this world can offer. Of course he's the God of the universe and we know him. And we know him. And he knows us. Oh, that's good news, Redeemer. And what Paul wants the Philippians to know and he, what he wants all of us to know is that there is nothing at all in this life that matters when it is placed next to the person and work of King Jesus. If you are sitting here this morning and you do not know him, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God is calling you to take whatever it is that you are entrusting yourself to and to count it all as loss, as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what he desires. That's what he's calling us to, to repent and entrust ourselves to him. If you're sitting here this morning and you have strayed from him, today is the day to count whatever it is you thought was more important, more valuable, more fun, and to count that as loss. He's calling us back. He wants to know us. He wants to be with us. This is our God. This is our God. There is nothing else absolutely nothing else. It all pales in comparison to almighty King Jesus. Today is the day when by any means possible, you hitch yourself to Christ so that you might arrive at the resurrection of the dead. 
There is literally nothing more important than this. What, what competing message of salvation are you allowing to keep you from knowing the God who created you and breathed life into you? What is it? Please tell me what's better than knowing Christ. There's nothing. There's nothing than being brought into the family of Almighty God so that we might show the world what God is like. Let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the power of the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, who equips us to walk in newness of life. Father, I pray for our people this morning, for all of us, Lord, myself included. Oh, Lord, that we would fully entrust ourselves to the faithfulness of your son, Jesus. God, I beg that of you. Rip everything away, Lord, that might be distracting us, that might be hindering us, so that by any means we might arrive at the resurrection of the dead. Oh, you're so good, God, so good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.